Welcome to the Dunwoody Community Church Podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to listen in to one of our Sunday services, and we hope that you will be blessed by today's message. For more information about Dunwoody Community Church, please visit us at dunwoodychurch.org. That's dunwoodychurch.org. Welcome back to 1 Corinthians. We have finished chapter 7, so guess what? We're headed into chapter 8. So turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm happy to say, after a couple weeks of having to do the full pastoral disclosure, that I'm not exactly sure what the question was they asked Paul and what his answer means. This week, we know exactly what the question they asked Paul is, and he quotes them. So we have some idea of the, the argument they're making and the things that they're asking him. So that is super helpful. So before we read it, let me really quickly tell you what the issue is. So you're thinking about that as you read. One of the hot button issues in the first hundred years or so of Christianity was the question of whether Christians could eat meat. Now, it had nothing to do with health. It had nothing to do with vegetarianism or anything like that. Um, It's because pretty much any meat you bought will come from a temple. You know, there are, if you think about in the Old Testament, when there are sacrifices to God, you know, every day there are two bulls killed or two two, uh, sheep killed or two goats killed. and, And that just happens every day over and over again. And that meat is used to feed the priests who are there. Well, the same thing is going on in all these temples in the ancient world, in the Greco Roman Empire. But they don't just have one God. They have scores of gods. They have hundreds of gods. In Corinth, there will be hundreds of temples because every God, every deity has a temple. And each one of these is doing sacrifices. And sometimes maybe they're you know, just doing one cow or something like that, and that meat is going to feed the priests and things. But oftentimes, they're having festivals, big celebrations in which lots and lots of animals are killed, way more animals than they can eat during the celebration. So what happens to all that meat? Well, the temple sells it. So the temple of Apollo has a big festival on Wednesday night. Thursday morning, lots of that meat, all the meat that's left over is going to be in the marketplace. And we also know that when we dig up these cities and these temples, what we so often find next to the temple is a restaurant because the restaurant was kind of attached to the temple. That's where they got their meat. They got it from the temple to Apollo or the temple to Zeus or the temple to Hera or whatever Greek god or goddess it is. So the Christians feel like they're in a bind. They know they're not allowed to participate in the idol feast. They can't go Wednesday night to the worship service at Zeus's temple. They can't participate in that meal. But can they buy food in the market the next day that was killed as part of that worship service? Can they go to the restaurant the next day that's having a special on pork loin because they just killed all of these pigs as part of a celebration? That question divides the faith a lot in the first century. And that's the question they're asking him. Can a Christian eat meat when you know that the animal was dedicated to a God and killed as part of a worship service to that God? So knowing that, read along with me. We're going to read all of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul gives his answer to this question. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. 
So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat it. We're no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. So I told you, we're fortunate. We know what the issue is because it's a much bigger issue. It's not just an issue in Corinth. It's an issue all over Christendom in that first century. And we know the things that they're saying to him in their argument because he quotes them. We know that, quote, we all possess knowledge. So it seems like you've got this group of people in Corinth who are arguing that they ought to be allowed to eat meat sacrificed to idols because everybody understands. They said, you know, there really are no such thing as idols. There's just one God and we worship him. And what does it matter what the pagans did with this cow? It's just a cow. They're arguing about how they, they know these things. They, they know theology. They know what the right answers are. And do you notice Paul begins, it almost seems like he's going to go off track. We've seen him do that before, where he doesn't actually talk about food or idols at all. He has this sort of weird interaction about, well, you know, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Like That's an interesting image, isn't it? You know, that, that knowledge is like blowing up a balloon. <laughs> like it, it, it gets big and it looks impressive, but how long does a balloon last? You know, if you blow up a balloon and sit it on your bookshelf, how long is it going to be there? A day? Two days? A week? You know, compare that to a bowling ball, right? Something that, that's physically built. Put a bowling ball on your bookshelf, it'll still be there when your grandkids come over, however many decades later. Unless you move it, it's gonna stay there. It's not going anywhere. You, you've got this contrast between knowledge, which, which Paul's kind of like, yeah, you know. I mean, yeah, it, it does some things, but it's, it's not all that great. I mean, you really want love, that builds up. And then he does it again with this sort of enigmatic, it's kind of like a Greek philosopher statement. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. It sounds like something Socrates would have said 500 years earlier. You know, Socrates said things like, the only thing I know for sure is that I know nothing for sure. And Paul sort of, you know, seems like he's saying the same thing. But again, you've got this contrast between knowledge, ah, you know, not so much and, and love. Like if you love God, then you're known by God. If you want knowledge properly, it comes through love. Paul's contrasting these two things, which doesn't say anything about food sacrifice to idols. So it's kind of as if in verse four, like, you know, he sort of reels it back in. He's like, oh yeah, okay, right. Food sacrifice to idols. But that's not what he's doing. Hang on to those first couple verses. They're really important. Remember what I've told you many times before, that these guys, they don't argue the way they argue. They don't argue one, two, three, four, five. They'll argue like, 
one, two, five, three, four, or something like that. What happens at the beginning often goes with what comes at the end. Hang on to what Paul says there. It's going to be important. Now in verse four, he turns and again, he's quoting them, right? Oh, we know an idol's nothing at all. We know there's really no such thing as idols. We know there's really only one God and that's our God. And Paul pretty much is agreeing with them here. You know, he, th- th- they're having a debate that we still have today. I mean, what were the Greek gods? Were they just man-made constructions? You know, the, the sun goes across the sky, so we create a god, Apollo, who drives a chariot across the sky. Is it, is it just a human thing? Is it demonic? Like, was Apollo actually a demon, right? Or, or was it somewhere in between? Did people create these and then demons are happy to use them for bad purposes? They didn't know in Corinth at the time. We don't even know now. And Paul's kind of like, you know what? Yeah, it, it, you're right. You're absolutely right. As far as we're concerned, Oh, idols? No, they're nothing. We don't worry about idols. God, Jesus, that's, that's who we are concerned with. We let God worry about idols. That, that's his business. I mean, he's kind of agreeing with him here. But then notice what he says in verse seven. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Now, keep your finger on seven and go back and look at what they said to him in verse one. He's quoting them. We all know that we all possess knowledge. Like, do you notice in verse seven, he is directly contradicting them. But I don't know about you, but I didn't notice that the first several times I wrote it. I mean, I've told you before that I think Paul's being very careful as he writes this letter because this is a very divided and divisive church. And I think that if he is gonna come down hard on them, he wants to make sure that he comes down on the right things. And so, you know, he's, he seems like he's agreeing with them at first and yet, Really, he's just disagreed with them, but he's done it in a way that it really doesn't feel like a contradiction. He's like, hey, you know, you're, you're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, idols, who knows what they are, but, but that for us, that's not important. You're right. For us, there's just one God and one Lord. We don't worry about anybody else. But you know, not everybody knows that. And I bet the people in Corinth who wrote this, they're probably nodding because this debate is going on in Corinth. They wouldn't be asking Paul what the answer was if it wasn't an issue back in their city. Paul's like, you know, Some people, they're still so accustomed to idols that when they eat food sacrificed to idol, for them, it's it's like the idol is real to them. What he literally says is, you know, some people are in the habit right up till today of, of eating food to idols as idols. And so Paul says, hey, these guys, their conscience is weak. Now, Paul is making a pun, a play on words here that doesn't work in English. Because in his language, the word conscience literally means shared knowledge. It's the word knowledge and the word together, put together to make a new word. It means the things we all agree on, the knowledge we all have in common. That's its literal definition. It then comes metaphorically to be the idea of the the conscience, the things that we all agree about right and wrong. So, So you see how Paul is playing in this passage on this idea of knowledge. He's like, hey, you're right when you say that we know these things are true, but not everybody knows that because their conscience, their shared knowledge is weaker than yours. And so Paul says, if they eat that food, they're defiled. Like, they're not right in thinking, oh, eating food sacrificed to God, that's I'm participating in the, the God's worship. Paul's like, no, the idol's nothing, right? He'll say in a minute, it's just food, it's just a cow. But they feel that way. So for them, Paul says, it actually harms them 
to do that. So, so Paul has laid out there's sort of these two groups in the church in Corinth. One group, the group apparently that's writing him this question, they know, they're sure, they're confident, right? They're saying, oh, we all know this. We all know this is true. Everybody knows idols are nothing. Everybody knows that there's only one God, right? That, that they're sure of themselves. They're sure of what they know. And then you've got this other group and they're not sure. Their conscience, their shared knowledge is much weaker than these other guys. They have baggage, if you will, from their life as idol worshipers, right? They used to go to the temple of Apollo and participate in these feasts. So now when they eat the meat that they know was part of that, you know, for them, it's like they're back there or something. I mean, you've got these two groups, one that knows, oh, and one that, one that doesn't know. Their knowledge isn't nearly as good And Paul goes on to say, and again, he sounds like he's agreeing with the first group. Hey, it's just food. Food doesn't bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat it. We're no better if we do. And again, I try and put myself into the mind of the the people, right? I I try and think, okay, how would I hear this if I was a a Greek living in this time? The, The things that I knew, how I grew up, right? I think I'd be nodding to this, right? It sounds like he's agreeing. Sure, sure, it's just food. And yet I think about it a little different. Like he hasn't just said, oh, you know, if you eat it, you're no better and you're no worse. If you don't eat it, you're no better and you're no worse. He's very specifically laid it out in these, these two different ways. He says, literally, we don't lack anything if we don't eat. We don't gain anything if we do eat. Now, if I think about that, I don't think that's true. If I don't eat meat, then I lack something. And if I do eat meat, I've gained something. Like Paul, he kind of seems like he's agreeing at first with, oh, you know, it's just food. Food doesn't bring us near to God. It's not a moral issue here. This this doesn't help us one way or another. And yet when you think about it, well, I'm not sure he is agreeing. You know, if I'm one of these guys who's writing to Paul and saying, hey, right, I mean, idols are nothing. This isn't a big deal. It's just a cow. We can all go have lunch at the temple Thursday, right? If they had a festival on Wednesday, then there's all this cheap meat on Thursday. Of course, we can go and eat that. It's not a big deal. And it's kind of as if Paul's saying back to them, oh, absolutely. It's just a cow. Idols are nothing. It's not a big deal. Why are you making a big deal out of it? Why is it so important to you? Like if it's not a big deal and it doesn't matter, why are we having this discussion about whether you're right and whether you can do it? Paul, he's beginning to challenge them. And each sentence as we move forward, it becomes more and more pointed. It becomes more and more of Paul challenging these guys who are saying, oh, what does it matter, right? It's just a cow. Idols are nothing. Sure, we can eat it. It's not a problem. Because he'll go on in the next verse of verse 9 to say, hey, you need to be careful that the exercise of your rights isn't a stumbling block for the weak. When he says exercise your rights, the word is literally authority. He's not saying, oh, you have some hypothetical option to do this. He's saying you're right, You're absolutely right. You have complete authority to eat that food, right? Your theology is sound. You are right about idols. You are right about food. Completely, you have authority to eat that. But remember those weaker guys, right? Their their conscience isn't as strong. Their shared knowledge, it's not as good as yours. Like, don't trip them up. I mean, that stumbling block means exactly that. It's something you hit your foot on and you trip. You stumble. He's like, oh, you need to be 
careful. Now I think, okay, what's he going to say next? Right again, I'm trying to put myself into the text. I'm trying to imagine that I live in Corinth and I know these things and, and I, I read this. What's Paul going to say next? We've got these guys, like I know this is true. I know these things, but they don't know them. And so it's a problem for them. The fact that they don't understand these things is a problem for them. It means they can't eat what they, what they can legitimately eat. It means they feel bad about things they shouldn't feel bad about. What I think Paul is going to say next is, hey, you need to educate them. You need to explain this to them. Remember, their shared knowledge, their conscience, it's weak, but yours is strong. You know, you're right, you get it, you understand. You need to explain it to them. That's what I expect Paul to say, right? Oh, I don't want to trip them up, right? I need to sit down with them and explain to them why I'm right and they're wrong. And then they'll be able to do all the things that I do. And that's not what Paul says next, is it? Instead, he lays out this hypothetical in verse 10. If someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? And and again, he's getting more and more pointed. One of the things he's doing here, and again, it doesn't come out for us in English, is the you has now changed to singular. You know, in English, you could be one person, it could be a ton of people. But in Paul's language, there's two different words. One means all of you, y'all, and one means just you as an individual. Up until now, everything's been y'all. He's talking either to the whole church or he's talking to the guys that have written him this question. The people are saying, oh, idols are nothing. We only have one God. It's just cows. What's the problem? Right? He's talking to all of them. You, plural, like me saying you, Dunwoody Community Church. Now, in verse 10, the you is singular. He's not talking to the group. He's talking to everyone as an individual. It's not me saying, you know, you, Dunwoody Community Church. They're saying you, Jeff. Jeff, you as an individual person. Jeff, if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, Jeff, eating at the restaurant next to the temple, eating the food that was sacrificed to Apollo the night before. Won't that embolden them to eat the food? And I think, yes, of course it will. And I think that's a good thing, right? That would be good for them because they're wrong. I'm right and they're wrong. And so they're living in fear. They're unable to, they don't have the freedom that I have because they're wrong, the best thing that can happen to them is for them to become like me, to know what I know and to be able to do what I do, not to to live with this baggage of their old life. I, I read that, I try and put myself in their place and I think, oh yeah, you're right. I need to explain this to them. Maybe I should take them to the idol feast. Maybe I should take them to the restaurant one day. I want them to be emboldened to do this. Oh, and here's where Paul just, boom, he shuts the trap. In Paul's language, it doesn't matter what order you put the words. Like it super matters for us in our language, in English, right? If I say, John ate a fish, that is a completely different statement than saying a fish ate John. It's the same four words, John ate a fish. But the order really matters, especially for John. John is absolutely happy with one and not happy with the other. 
In Paul's language, it doesn't matter what order you put things. That allows them to move words around to emphasize things. So they'll move the most important thing in the sentence to the front. They'll move other important things to the back. You you move things out of normal position. You put them in the front, or sometimes you put them in the back to emphasize things, to bring things to the front. To, to you know, it's like us typing in all caps or adding exclamation points. You know, have you you seen period? You know, people who put periods between the words, right? You period must period stop period that period, right? It it, it gives emphasis. They do that in Paul's language by the order they put the words in. Guess what the very first word is in verse 11? It's destroyed. He is destroyed. That's the first word. Guess what the last word is in that verse? Died. Christ died. So I'm studying this. I've got my computer with my commentaries on it. I've got my Bible with the English in it. I've got my phone where I have my Greek Bible on it. And so I'm studying this. I'm working my through it. it. I'm trying to put myself in their place. And I'm moving through it. I'm thinking, okay, this is what I expect next. Let's see what he says. Oh, that's not what I thought, right? I read that sentence and I, I I put the phone down. It's like being slapped in the face. Like it's so, it's so strong. And again, remember, it's personal. He's talking right to each person. It's not you collectively. It's Jeff. When you do that, you destroy your brother. Jesus died for your brother. Right? That, that contrast between the beginning and the end. It's so powerful. That, that's the issue. Why does Jesus die for us? Because he loved us. Remember what Paul said at the beginning, because you often need to connect the beginning and the end. What it's at the beginning. Look, there's knowledge and then there's love. And what you want is love. Like knowledge really isn't going to get you there. What it builds isn't that great. It doesn't last. Even when you think you have it, you probably don't. If you really want to be known, you need to love. If you want knowledge, you need to love and you'll get knowledge. But if you go for knowledge, I... right? he sets up this comparison. And now at the end, he shows you these two. What I do, I destroy my brother by trying to get him to agree that I'm right. And Jesus dies for my brother, even though Jesus was right. Jesus was completely right. He's 100% right. Everything he said was right. Everything he did was right. Everything he taught was right. He was completely, perfectly right. I mean, you know, I think I'm right about one issue. Jesus was right about every issue. But does he come to earth and do what I want to do, which is convince you to agree with me. Convince you to agree that I'm right, so you can do what I do and live like I live. No. Jesus doesn't come to earth and say to us, okay, here's what I know, and you need to agree with me, and then we'll see what we can do. Right? You have a serious problem, so let's make sure you know all these things. Make sure you agree that I'm right, and then we'll talk. No, he dies for us. He dies for us when he's right, and we're wrong because we are defiled. We're defiled by the choices we make. We're defiled by the the things we've done. We're defiled by what we know and what we don't know. And we are going to be destroyed. So Jesus comes and he dies for us. When I would want to make sure that you agreed with me, 
I just put my phone down. I mean, I almost started crying because I got it. Like I knew exactly what Paul was saying. I heard it. I heard all of his condemnation for me. Who wants to be right? And Paul's not done yet, and he's not letting up. When you sin against your brother this way, when you wound their conscience, that word wounds mean to beat with a stick. When you beat your brother, when you sin against him, you sin against Christ. And then he makes this remarkable statement. So you know what? If anything I eat could possibly harm my brother or sister, if anything I eat could possibly trip them up, it could, could make them do something they're not comfortable doing, it could push them into something that, that, that's just they're not ready for, oh, I'll never eat meat again, Paul says. Actually, that doesn't even begin to catch how strongly, I cannot imagine a way in his language to say more strongly what he says here. It's something like, I will absolutely never eat meat for eternity. He literally says that, for eternity. He's not just saying, oh, I'll never eat meat again for some period of time, never eat meat again in my life. I'll never eat meat again ever. Not here, not in Jesus' kingdom if necessary. Wow. Now, normally in a sermon, this is the point where I would say something like, you know, I'm going to pray for us now. I'm going to pray that God's spirit would speak to you. Are there places where you're doing what I realize I'm doing, right? What you care about is being right. You want to convince other people that you're right so you can keep doing what you're doing. You're not living out of love. You're living out of knowledge and wanting to be right. Because Why do I want to convince you that I'm right? Why do I want you to agree with me? So I can keep doing what I'm doing. I want to go to the restaurant on Thursday and have meat. I want to keep eating the meat. You don't think I should. I want you to agree that I should so I can. I'm not living out of love. I'm living out of knowledge and wanting to be right. I would now pray and say, you know, is there any way you're doing that too, right? Here's an example of me doing it. Let's pray and see if God would speak to you about that. But I don't have to do that this time because we have just lived through this. We have just lived through something just like this. The pandemic for the last, what, uh, 16, 17 months. Like this exact thing has happened. You've got these, these two groups in Corinth who disagree Well, that's what's happened in the pandemic. We have sort of two camps in the church and they disagree. And of course, there's people all across the spectrum. You know, I'm painting in broad generalities, but but there's one camp in the church that prioritizes safety and health and they're right. Like they have knowledge, they have studies, they have all sorts of things to show why they're right. And we have another camp in the church that prioritizes community. And they're right. They have studies and they have articles. They can quote Bible verses. And the people who prioritize safety can quote Bible verses. Because the Bible doesn't say whether what you should do during a pandemic. The people who prioritize safety say, 
We need to separate. We need to distance. We need to wear masks. There's times we shouldn't be meeting. We should just be virtual. Safety is what's most important. And the people who prioritize community say, we must be meeting. We can't wear masks. We can't be virtual. That's not community. This is what has to happen. And both these groups are convinced they're right. Now, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that in the last 500 days, which is about how long all this has gone on, the the beginning of March, about 500 days ago, um, I think I've had over 1,000 conversations about this topic. Because, I mean, that would only be two a day. I don't know about you, but did a day go by in the last 500 days that we didn't talk about the pandemic? I had dozens of conversations about the pandemic over the last 500 days. A thousand is probably a low number for the number of times I talked about this. And I think, what did I talk about? Knowledge. What I knew. What I read. What I Googled. What my mind had put together. What I understood. And I was right. And people who disagreed with me were wrong. And if only they agreed with me, then they would live in the freedom that I lived in. They would make the wise choices that I was making. It doesn't matter which side you're on, whether you prioritize safety or you prioritize community. Whichever one I did, whatever one I was prioritizing at the time, I was right. And I was trying to convince you that I was right. And I read this, and I put the phone down, and I said to Jesus, I'm so sorry. I've done this. I've been doing this. I've been living this for the last year and a half. I have been living out prioritizing knowledge and being right and getting everyone to agree with me instead of prioritizing love the love that Christ had, that though he was right, he died. The love that Paul says he has for this church, I'll never eat meat again, ever for eternity, if it harms a single one of my brothers. Brothers and sisters, I have to confess to you, I have not done that for the last year and a half. I have not loved you like that. I have not thought about these issues like that. I have thought about knowledge, And I have thought about being right. I have thought about how to convince you that I'm right. So you will go along with what I want. And I'm sorry. So I'm not going to close this passage by praying that God would show you if there's any places in your life where this might matter. Because it's been true for all of us. Now, I don't know anybody's heart. I don't know anybody's mind. I'm not psychic. I can't read your thoughts. I have no idea if you've done what I've done, but I suspect many of you have. Like that thousand plus conversations I had, I bet you were having them too. And I bet you were talking about knowledge in many of them instead of prioritizing love. So I'm going to repent. And if you have been prioritizing knowledge and being right, instead of prioritizing love, instead of being willing, like Paul, to give up being right, to give up what you know is right, to give up trying to convince everyone else to come along and do it your way, because it would be so much better then. If you've been doing what I'm doing, then repent with me. Let's pray. Jesus, I confess that I have not done what Paul says. I have not 
I have not thought the way he thinks. I have not lived the way he lives. I still don't. I still don't love the way Paul loves. I don't love the way you love. I know, I know what I am doing, what I have done does not please you because it doesn't look like you, Jesus. You who were 100% right and gave all of it up and died. I know I don't look like that, but I want to. I am sorry, Lord God. I am sorry I have not done what Scripture says to do over and over and over again. Prioritize love for my brothers and sisters. Give up what I have every right for. Give up everything I'm right about. Give up all my liberty and all my freedom from now to eternity rather than cause any harm to a brother or sister. I know what your word says. Jesus, you didn't tell us they'll know you're my disciples because you're right all the time. You said people would know us because we love one another. And I confess, Jesus, I have not loved the way I should. Help me, change me. I want to be like you. I need your spirit to be at work in me. And I pray for my brothers and sisters now. I pray for everybody listening to me, for anyone who has done what I've done, for anyone who has prioritized knowledge over love, who has prioritized being right over giving up our rights for our brothers and sisters. I pray that you would give them courage to repent, that you would give them courage to do what scripture calls us to do, to prioritize love, to care for one another, even if it means we give up everything we have the right to. We give up our freedom and our liberty for one another. Jesus, forgive me. Forgive my brothers and sisters who have done the same thing. Help us as we move forward. We want to be like you. We pray this in your name, Lord, always. Salvation is found nowhere else. In your name, Jesus, we love you and we're yours. Amen.